Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Henley, and this is Brexit Memes, the Guardian podcast that for the past couple of years has tried its damnedest to make sense of the completely nonsensical and will bravely continue to do so even if it kills me, which, to be perfectly honest, it is increasingly feeling like it might. Anyway, where are we now? Essentially, back to where we started. Yes, that's right. Just over 1,000 days since the referendum and hours before Britain was originally due to leave, it's all still to play for. Deal? No deal, soft Brexit, hard Brexit, no Brexit, general election, second vote, the lot. Everything looks up for grabs. What's new, though, is that the EU has told Britain to finally get off the fence and make up its mind, and exasperated MPs, rather than the government, fully intend to do so. How did we get to this point? Well, because MPs had rejected twice and overwhelmingly the withdrawal agreement the government signed with the EU last year, Theresa May headed back to Brussels last week, eight days before the original March 29 Brexit deadline, to seek an unconditional delay until the 30th of June. Ringing in her ears were the words of the TUC and the CBI, i.e. the unions and the employers, who said in a remarkable joint statement that the country was facing a national emergency and needed a plan B. But if we know anything about Mrs May, it's that she doesn't really do plan Bs, and the EU27 were thoroughly unconvinced that she had the first clue what to do if MPs rejected her deal for a third time, so they gave her short shrift, telling her instead that Britain can remain in the EU until the 22nd of May, if MPs back the deal, but must leave on the 12th of April without a deal, unless by that date it's found another way forward out of the present impasse, agreed to hold European elections and asked for a much longer delay. Ball, therefore, firmly back in Britain's court. At which point, as more than a million people marched in London to demand a second vote and more than five million signed a petition calling for Article 50 to be revoked altogether we naturally had a heavily rumoured cabinet coup against the Prime Minister. That seems, at least since then, to have come to nothing. And then, apparently, every bit as fed up with the government as the EU27 had become, the House of Commons also voted to take back control of the Brexit agenda, passing an amendment tabled by the Conservative MP Oliver Letwin that will now allow MPs to explore various options for a way out of the mess in a series of what are known as indicative votes. So... A solution finally in sight? You must be joking.
But let's hear what our guests think. With me, well, not physically with me, because I'm actually stuck in Paris today because of a French customs strike, to discuss what happens next are in London. Sonia Soda, the chief leader writer on The Observer and The Guardian's deputy comment editor. Anand Menon, professor of European politics at King's College London and director of the UK in a changing Europe think tank. And as ever in Brussels, Guardian correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you. Sonia, can I start with you then? Uh, I mean, obviously an awful lot's happened, so let's try and tackle it reasonably logically. First up, uh, Theresa May's trip to Brussels and that demand for an extension of Article 50 to the end of June, she wanted. I mean, what was she actually hoping to achieve? It seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it, John? It um, so I think her strategy, in as far as you can call it a strategy, and going to the council and asking for that extension till the end of June, was really to try and create a deal versus no deal cliff edge and I think she sort of calculated that you know there was some chat before she went to Brussels that maybe she was going to go and ask for a long extension as a result of her deal not getting through but essentially people on you know in the Eurosceptic flank of her party told her they weren't going to put up with that so I think she saw that the only way to try and get her deal through was to try and create a deal versus no deal cliff edge she wanted the European Union to grant her a three-month extension essentially so that took us past the point of European elections and then I think once European elections happened in happened in May once that were to happen it'd be very difficult for the EU to grant the UK a longer extension so I think her thinking was the sort of sharp cliff edge on the 29th of March hasn't worked actually I could potentially create an even sharper one the end of June by essentially taking a long extension off the table and then really you know moderate MPs are going to have to rally around my deal because it's either my deal or no deal I think that was her thinking. I think it was very ill-judged, though. Uh, we saw that from the the negative response that she got from the the EU, you know, the European Council, and they were a bit like, "Well, why should we uh, do this for you?" I think, and they, they they were very very concerned. If we stay in the EU officially, but we move past the point of European elections, they were just really worried that that was going to create all sorts of issues if Britain did then try and seek a long extension, even if we hadn't held European elections. So that that was a situation that they absolutely wanted to avoid and I think is what explains partly what explains their negative response to her on that. Okay, yes, because I mean, clearly, you know, if that was uh, the strategy, as Sonia says, Jennifer, you know, it, it, it didn't work out, did it? Um, and the EU very firmly said no. From Brussels, where, where you are, what, what was the EU 27's objection exactly to that to that June 30th deadline. Um, and also, could you tell us a little, because it, it became also clear during the summit that they weren't altogether agreed on what they wanted instead, were they? I mean, pretty much for the first time in the Brexit process, there really was some kind of, you know, quite real differences of opinion around the table. How were they eventually resolved? Yes, well, there they were some, some clear differences of opinion. Uh, when, when Theresa May turned up with her pitch, which, which was that extension until the end of June, uh, and she was pitching it as a way to have her deal voted in Parliament and then sort out the paperwork, all the, the Withdrawal Act bill, and, and presented that as, as something that would be fine. But the problem was EU leaders didn't believe her. They kept asking her questions. What's your plan if this doesn't pass again? What will you do to get a majority to make sure that this deal really does go through? And they they found her thoroughly unconvincing. They complained she was evasive, that she dodged the questions. So there was real unhappiness with her pitch for an extension. So the EU leaders decided, well, we have to take control ourselves of this process. And that's where we ran into into 
yeah, there, a real division between how to handle this situation. On the one hand, you had Emmanuel Macron of France. He wanted to really lay down the law, set a deadline and be very strict about this, that we can't afford to, to have the UK just sort of hanging it half in, half out and not really knowing what's happening. And he really worried about a very messy process where the uh, Theresa May's meaningful vote would fall this week, assuming it would have taken place. And then suddenly there'll be another summit on the eve of the 29th of March. Everyone will be called back to Brussels and be forced to take a very sudden decision about what to do next. And and that was the last thing he wanted because he thought a rush decision would be a bad decision. And then on the other hand, you had Angela Merkel of Germany saying, well, you know, this is a historic decision. And she was very reluctant to be forcing the, the UK out. And she and she really sort of put this point um forcefully in the room that um, that they had to think about this very carefully and treat the UK carefully. So what they came up with as an alternative is this two-step extension process, which actually everyone seems quite happy with. So, so the UK will face a choice. And and I mean, as Jennifer says, they, so they they you know they 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 came up with a with a quite a neat but also quite a complicated sort of dual deadline mechanism. One I guess that sort of basically avoids the EU having to take the responsibility for a no deal, uh, but it leaves all the options open and it really forces Britain to make a choice. I mean, could you you know in your best sort of Brexit for Simpleton's manner um, talk us through this and and explain really why it has put the ball quite so firmly back in Britain's court. Well, I think there are two things worth saying. Firstly, you're absolutely spot on. The EU does not want to be seen to be responsible for a no-deal outcome. And this is a way of making it clear, if that happens, we gave them every possible chance we could, and they failed. So with elections coming up, EU leaders in France, Belgium and Holland don't want their businesses saying, what have you done to us? They want it to be clear it was the UK's fault. And I suppose in terms of the two-step strategy, I mean, the way I'd say it is the EU essentially put us on the naughty step. They said, look, go away. Think about this. If you can come to an agreement, fine, we'll give you a bit longer, you can get everything through, you can leave in an orderly fashion with this deal. Or if you can get another solution, if you can come up with another plan, another way forward, that's fine. But if you can't, we need to bring this to an end, and we'll bring it to an end on the 12th of April. And what they've done rather cleverly is made it clear, not just to the Prime Minister, but also to Parliament, which is, I think, what speaks to the amendment yesterday, that if meaningful vote isn't going anywhere, Parliament needs to do something because there's a hard deadline and we need a plan before it. It basically says it's make your mind up time. Yeah, precisely. OK. All right. What happened after that, Sonia? Um, back in Britain, there was an awful lot of noise over the weekend, particularly in the Sunday papers uh, after the EU summit, uh, about a real cabinet coup uh, being plotted against the prime minister. Now, that seems to have come to nothing. Was it ever real? Might it rear its head again? Who were the movers and shakers? Um, how safe is May really at this stage? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I know... We keep being told that she's finished, that her authority is shot to pieces, that she's completely lost control. But she's still there, isn't she? Well, this is a paradox of uh, Theresa May, something we've observed about her all along. No one in her party seems to like her. I think one thing that that unites the Conservative Party at the moment is there's a lot of MPs who would like to see her go. Um, But at the same time, she sort of uh, remains suspended uh, in sort of uncomfortable um, uh, animation almost uh, as leader of uh, the Conservative Party and as Prime Minister. So I think it was 
I mean, there certainly was talk of a plot. I think there's two big problems, though. The first is, yes, the Tory party's united that it doesn't want Theresa May to be leader anymore, but it certainly isn't united on who might be the caretaker leader that might take over from her. And so you had names touted around over the weekend, people like David Liddington, Michael Gove. You know, there isn't a name that unites people who are unhappy in the Conservative Party with Theresa May's leadership. So that's a big problem. The other thing is, um, is that actually... Although Theresa May's authority really is shot and she has completely, it would seem, lost the confidence of her parliamentary party, um, there was a challenge to her leadership um, a few months ago. And under the rules of the Conservative Party, they're not allowed to challenge again for another 12 months. So officially, she's kind of safe as leader of the Tory party, you know, but on a strict rules based interpretation until December. So really, if she's going to go before then, it will be because people in her party have put a lot of pressure on her to go and I I absolutely think you know no one's expecting her to be around until December I think there is perhaps you know if she were somehow to get her deal through before April the 12th I suspect she very much would try and cling on um but I think that one of the routes to her getting her deal through if she were to get it through and I have to say it's not looking particularly sort of hopeful at the moment would be if she strikes a deal with the hard eurosceptic flank of her party the ERG where she says I will go um, as a condition if you you know that's a condition I'll put on you supporting the deal so um, you know I think more likely than not she, she's not going to last the next kind of two or three months but there is a real sort of um, question uh, logistically about how people who don't want her to be in place anymore make that happen okay um jennifer let's just bounce it back to brussels um because there was a a a lot of satisfaction among the eu 27 um and certainly in the media uh i recall uh, you know uh, with with this sort of cunning plan but uh, the bloc is still quite worried aren't they that a a no deal brexit remains the most likely outcome why why is that exactly and could you also say a little bit about the fact that the commission announced yesterday beginning of the week that they completed their no deal planning any interesting elements in that and and as it true that they've got all bases covered i mean for example do they know what to do in ireland in the event of a no deal yes well we've got quite used to this now that after every milestone in the brexit process the eu then comes forward and announces the latest on its own no deal planning and of course this has two purposes it's it's practical it needs to be done but it's also morale boosting and it's a it's a message that the eu is is ready and that's very much the message that the european commission wanted to send at the beginning of this week when they announced that they had completed all their no deal planning which is almost uh, technically correct because uh, they've now uh, have they say they have 17 out of 19 laws agreed which covers all sorts of things which will mean, mean that planes can keep flying for a limited time trucks can keep crossing borders although british uh, operators won't have the same freedoms that they currently have now it also affects uh, Erasmus students who are studying abroad it affects travelers tourists and uh, and business travelers uh, crossing borders so they're all sort of um, manner of things to think about about uh, you know whether you can take your pet on holiday with you you know wh- will you have to queue in a if you have to queue in the non-EU lane if, in the event of a no deal Brexit so that the no deal planning really covers a huge sort of gamut of issues and that's just a, a flavor of it 
And, and while it's true to say that the Commission are saying that they've now completed their plans, in a sense, they also acknowledge that you can never really be complete because they will acknowledge that, in fact, it's going to be messy, it's going to be difficult, there will be tensions and problems that nobody has thought of yet. And, and that problem and, of the Irish border, I mean, do they, would they yes, know? Yes, well, and, yes, in, indeed. And that's the, the big unknown with the no deal planning, because they haven't really said what they intend to do on the Irish border. We had this sort of rather um, nomic uh, assurance yesterday that checks will have to be done where they belong. But where do the checks belong? What if you're a French customs officer and on no deal plus one, you have a, uh, or plus 20, you have a pallet of beef coming from Ireland where there's an open border between Ireland and, and now what will be the UK, a third country? If you're the French customs officer, do you treat that um, as is it all sort of Irish EU beef that's fully in line with the rules? Do you worry that there might be some contraband British beef mixed up in there? So that's a big, that's a big question for the EU. And I think what they're ultimately hoping is that the UK will come round to the backstop. I mean, that's reading between the lines. They hope to get the backstop through the back door by reminding the British government of their commitments to the Good Friday Agreement and, and any sort of attempt to get the, the UK to leave on no deal terms people will very quickly find that they will face the exact same terms from the EU when it comes to the, the Irish backstop and, of course, the money and uh, citizens' rights. So we'll, this withdrawal agreement is not going to go away. OK, back to Westminster then, and quite dramatic developments. Uh, and and the, the, this, this exciting Oliver Letwin amendment, uh, which has been sort of massively billed as MPs taking back control, or Parliament taking back control. I mean, it did go through by a pretty comfortable majority in the end. But what can you just explain what exactly happened there? And it, I mean, how far is it true to say that MPs really have taken control? I mean, I mean, I, I guess a lot will depend on how Parliament proceeds with this whole indicative votes process, what kind of solutions are put forward. Um, but just give us your views on that, would you? What, what are the options and, and is it really Parliament taking back control? Well, the first thing it's worth putting this in context is that we're in a weird situation now that is only made possible by the Fixed Term Parliament Act, where Parliament won't get rid of the government and the Prime Minister, but Parliament won't let the government and Prime Minister do the one thing they were elected to do, which is why we're in this impasse now. And of course, before the fixed term Parliament bill, the meaningful vote would have been a vote of no confidence and either it would have passed or we'd have had a general election. And we haven't got that sort of clarity now. So we are where we are. And as a result, this majority, this amendment was passed yesterday by, as you say, a significant majority of 20 odd votes. And what it does is it allows Parliament to take control of the diary. Okay, it doesn't allow Parliament to take control of Brexit per se, but Parliament now can say tomorrow on Wednesday, we are going to have a series of votes on potential Brexit outcomes. Now, whether this works or not, we're not sure till it happens, but there are several things. Firstly, there are the techie things. How they do the voting is going to matter enormously. So if they did one vote after another, we know that won't be really great because people might change their votes depending on how the earlier votes have gone. So they're going to try and do the votes at the same time. The talk is that people, MPs are going to be asked to put their preference down on a piece of paper, a pink slip, so that they can they can vote on all the options together. Now, do we put all the options on one pink slip or do we separate them is the next issue because some are procedural and some are substantive. So you might want a customs union, you might want Norway, but equally, you might have strong feelings about a referendum. So do we separate off the procedural ones from the substantive ones? And the final thing, if you're not confused enough already, is the 
is the proposal that's been pushed very, very hard by Ken Clark, in which Oliver Letwin seemed to be cautiously welcoming yesterday, which is, do you have a transferable vote system? That is to say, there's not a majority on first preferences. So do we have second and third preferences? So the least popular alternative after the first round drops out and votes are transferred to another. All sorts of problems inherent in that, but it might be a way of forcing Parliament to come up with a majority. The fi- Can I just say one f- final thing about taking back control? which is, of course, this might all end up paradoxically working in the Prime Minister's favour. If, if Parliament can't come up with a majority for anything and the Labour Party appears as split as most of us suspect it will, it could almost strengthen her if she brings a meaningful vote back. Right, exactly. We'll come on to that. Just, I mean, but just um, could you just lay out what, as far as you are aware, the options that are, you know, are, are clearly, as you've just explained, actually very clearly, the process of the of the or how the indicative votes are actually carried out uh, might have a big impact on the outcome. But what are the actual options that are on the table? Oh God, someone mentioned the number seven to me this morning. Yeah, I'm looking desperately seven, at Sonia for help here. But <laughs> if Customs you think Union, out, oh, Norway, Canada. referendum, Canada, no, no deal. deal. I presume. Revoke Article 50. Yep, unilateral revocation. That's six. Any advance on six? Hmm. What have we left six. out? Six. Okay, we'll go with six. But that's a pretty, that's oh, I think a pretty there's fair co- yeah, range of We did options. Customs Union and Norway, did we? Yeah. yeah okay. Oh, so that's I'm not right. sure what the seven yes, is. Yeah. You're, you're right. Okay, thank you for that. And then, so, uh, Sonia, back to Theresa May. What? How bigger blow was this really for her? I mean, Anand hinted at this a bit, but, you know, she, she's basically said she won't feel obliged to follow Parliament's recommendations, hasn't she? Particularly if they push her towards solutions that she's already ruled out, like a customs union or a, a second referendum. Will she do that? And what do you think Parliament's response might be if she did? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's an extraordinary loss of authority for uh, Theresa May. We haven't seen um, anything like this Parliament taking back control of uh, the agenda for sort of over 100 years. Although I think it is important to note that actually in other legislatures around the world, lots of parliaments already have this agenda setting power. And what it is, is really a reflection of Theresa May's utter kind of loss of authority in the House of Commons now, because under normal circumstances, the government controls the agenda because the government has a majority and it controls um, votes. I think in terms of what happens. I mean, I think the arguments that Theresa May has put forward for ignoring the will of Parliament, should it come up with something that she doesn't like, are extraordinarily weak, actually. So what she said is if they come up with something like a customs union or a referendum that wasn't in the uh, 2017 Conservative Party manifesto, then she she simply can't respect what Parliament wants. Well, I mean, governments break manifesto promises all the time, including one said Theresa May. So um, there's quite a few high-profile policies in the Tory manifesto from 2017 including the dementia tax, for example, which are no longer Conservative Party policy. So I think it's a very weak argument and quite a desperate argument. I think if Parliament, I mean, as Anand has said, big question mark about whether Parliament actually there is a majority for anything. Lots of people talk about a majority uh, behind a soft Brexit, but I'm not actually clear that that exists at the moment. There is certainly still some work to do, and I think it's entirely conceivable that Parliament doesn't get behind anything. But were they to do so and were Theresa May to ignore it, I mean, I really do think that that sort of takes you into constitutional crisis territory, because at the end of the day, we are a parliamentary representative democracy. If MPs, a majority of MPs, say they want something and the Prime Minister says, no, I'm not going to deliver it, well, the Prime 
Prime Minister's only mandate to govern comes through the House of Commons in our democracy. And so if she tries to say, well, I'm going to ignore that, that takes us into some very difficult territory indeed. I mean, first of all, I think it's quite inconceivable, actually, that she would actually be able to say that politically. I think it would be very, very difficult if there's a majority of MPs behind something for her to really kind of carry this through and say, well, sorry, I'm not going to do it. I mean, she'll have to go. She'll have to resign, I think. But there may be ways that Parliament can seek to bind her hands. So some MPs are talking about, for example, trying to pass legislation that, that would bind the way in which she acts. But we're in pretty uncharted territory here. Yeah. And, and would you agree with that constitutional crisis territory? Uh, I'm not convinced as yet. I mean, we're on the borderline between a severe political and a constitutional crisis, it seems to me. And what I can't make up my mind is whether this is something that just comes out in the wash, i.e. we have an election or maybe two elections over five years and actually things start working again, that this is a crisis of leadership and of party Mm -hmm. or whether it is something more significant. A systemic one. Yeah, and I'm on the fence as ever. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jennifer, how's the how's this latest sort of twist in the tail being viewed in in Brussels? I mean, there must have been an idea. I mean, I see Guy Verhofstadt, the uh, the sort of the the Brexit point man of the of the European Parliament, being very happy about it. Um, there must have been an idea that this is what might happen, uh, wasn't there? And but are the are the EU twenty seven really ready for it? Because one possible outcome is that this really could lead to a very long delay before the UK leaves, with all that that entails. Yes, and a long delay is is very tricky for the EU. I, I think there is a certain amount of detachment from from the goings on at Westminster. I mean, if you think of Brexit from a Brussels point of view, it's like a long running soap opera, and there have been so many cliffhangers. Um, and plot twists that people have really given up trying to predict what might happen next, and they they wait and, and see from from one day to another. But but it's worth bearing in mind that the EU is really has always been uncertain, unsure, in doubt whether the UK would could go for a soft Brexit. And if you think back to autumn of 2016, Donald Tusk, the European Council president, said that the only alternative to hard Brexit is no Brexit. And people here just don't see the UK wanting to be Norway. They don't see the UK wanting to be a rule taker. And so far, these options have have survived in, in, in Westminster because there are a lot of comforting illusions and myths about the status the UK could have. So there's this idea that the UK would have an emergency break on the free movement of people if it was signed up to the Norway option. But when you break it down, that's actually wouldn't be true. There's also the idea that if you were in a customs union, the UK could still have some kind of say at, at the table, although it's left a bit ambiguous in, in Labour's plan. And but then again, when you really break it down, it, it wouldn't, uh, people in Brussels are insistent that wouldn't be the case. So so I think that's always why there's been a lot of scepticism of the soft Brexit um, options in, in Brussels. And, and these would really be teased out in, in a long delay process, or, or ideally over the next few days and, and weeks. And the question also of the of the whole question of the of the European elections, uh, you know, which which clearly isn't it's now clear would have to be held if there was a long delay. It, can can the EU absorb those? Well, they, I don't think the European elections are such a big problem for the EU because it, it's it's ready to do that. But they, it, it would simply carry on with the with the same size parliament it has now. 
but I think it would cause some unhappiness if, of course, by those because there are a number of countries that are due to gain seats as a result of the UK's departure because they would have to to reorganise the seats. So France, Ireland, uh, the Netherlands, that they're among several countries who would, who are due to pick up MEPs from the UK going. But then on the flip side, some some people might be happy. For example, if Labour MEPs stay in the European Parliament, that's good for the socialists who are who are set to lose seats in in these elections. So there's a kind of element of swings and roundabouts on on the Parliament side. But then uh, I think there are really bigger questions that are worrying EU leaders. I mean, obviously, they insist the UK will have to take part in those elections. That is a a big question for them. But they are worried that if the UK remains in the EU, then it's going to be a spoiler in all sorts of ways, that it's going to block negotiations on the seven-year budget, which are anyway going to be tortuously difficult uh, compared to it. And they're they're never easy uh, at the best of times. And then later on this year, we've got the whole debate over the EU's top jobs, who's going to take over as president of the European Commission and Council and, and, and other big jobs. The, the other member states, especially France, don't want the UK in the room and, and potentially blocking their candidates if the UK is no longer going to be a member state. So we're going to get an all, into all sorts of tricky territory if there is a long extension. And I expect the other member states will be looking for some kind of promises from the UK that it wouldn't be the, the spoiler and, the, and the, the difficult member state always seeking to block and, and stop things. But, but legally, the UK would have all the rights and, and the obligations that it has now. So that would be that would be difficult. Okay. Um, yeah. So a tricky one for the from the EU's perspective. And I mean, back back in the UK, Anand. And, um, now you, you you touched on this earlier, but it is interesting, isn't it? Whether whether this Letwin amendment has really changed anything? Because as you said, you know, if she if she does choose to ignore the indicative votes, uh, you know, she can. Um, and she's already said she aims to bring her deal back for a, a third meaningful vote. I mean, she's just aiming to present MPs with a choice, isn't she? Some sometime before April the 12th, between her deal and this sort of endless slow Brexit, as she's called it, with European elections, and essentially hope to scare them into voting for her. It's the, it's the same tactic as, as she's adopted since the start. Yeah, and scare them in a number of, scare a number of different people in a number of different ways, I suppose. So you scare the ERG, the European Research Group, by saying slow Brexit, perhaps no Brexit. You scare a whole number of MPs, I think, by holding out the prospect of European Parliament elections, because there are a lot of MPs who look with horror at the prospect of campaigning and are slightly worried that a sort of a new Brexit party that Nigel Farage has uh, created can do relatively well under proportional representation in what many will see as a protest vote and that might cause electoral problems ahead for them. Uh, so there are there are a whole number of threats she can brandish and I think you're absolutely right she intends to bring the meaningful vote back and hope that these threats actually pay off. What I would say and I can't quite get my head around this, and I imagine it was there as a concession to the Prime Minister, because otherwise I don't see the point, is that the Council conclusions from last week do say if the meaningful vote is passed next week, which is this week. I'm, I'm not sure the government has fully taken that on board yet, because there's a lot of talk about that coming, the, the vote coming back to Parliament next week. I imagine there is a way around that. But yeah, you know, I suppose you'd imagine, wouldn't you, that even if it, if it, if she said to the, you know, the EU, I've got a really good chance of getting this through next week, it's very hard to imagine them saying, well, the deadline we agreed was last week, so it's not happening, isn't it? And throwing away those months and months of negotiation. Jennifer, is that your view as well? I mean, there is, there does seem to be confusion about whether this this third meaningful vote has to be held this week or or next week. What 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 do you think the understanding is in Brussels? 
I think it's it's a bit of a grey area. Um, but Brussels, they certainly want to see a decision well before the 12th of April. They they don't want uh, the UK to be handing in its homework at 11:59 p.m. But but nonetheless, while they 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 wanted a bit earlier, they nobody has really said when. And of course, we saw last time that the uh, the EU ask the UK, you know, please make sure your extension bid comes in nice and early so we can consider it. And, and the UK subsequently only sent it the day before. So so things have a habit of running late and then the EU um, sort of respond to that and, and react as they have to. So it's it's um, it's to play for, I think. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, Sonia, uh, from where you are, the, 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 um, what will be the Prime Minister's calculations about sort of if and when to, to bring the, the deal back to, to the House of Commons? I mean, her, her core problem really remains the same, doesn't it? I mean, in, in other words, any move to seek consensus and a sort of a softer Brexit across the House and, and the Eurosceptic hardliners kind of blow up and any push for a no deal and the pro-Europeans desert her. And, you know, a related question to that, I suppose, the, the you know, five million signatures for, for Revoke Article 50 and a million marches uh, on the streets of London at the weekend. Is public opinion changing? Do you think? And, is that, oh, and, and is that going to make any difference to Theresa May? So I think in terms of her strategy uh, in bringing the deal back, I think that absolutely is a strategy to bring it back at some point, but only when there's a real movement amongst MPs um, to sort of fall in line and back it. And her big problem for her at the moment is um, the DUP are not falling in line. If, if anything, they're sort of becoming more hardline. And I think unless she gets a DUP support, her chances of getting the deal through are very, very small. And I think, you know, she could have sought to create two different types of cliff edge. One is a sort of her deal versus no Brexit kind of long extension cliff edge and she was gunning for that I think before she went to Brussels because she thought that was the way to keep the Conservative Party together and um, you know that sort of the the hardliners the Eurosceptic hardliners in her party would if they thought that it was her deal or nothing basically in terms of Brexit they'd fall in behind what she seems now to be doing um, is really sort of creating this deal versus no deal cliff edge but that's going to create if that's her route to getting her deal through so um, if you know if Parliament doesn't sort of fall behind anything in terms of these indicative votes and it looks like her deal is literally the only way of avoiding no deal left on the table that's going to be very difficult for her as you've just sort of hinted John internally within her own party because really it's going to mean that she's going to depend on a coalition that involves uh, a chunk of Labour MPs to get through all of the legislation that you need so I mean it, it is not over yet just because her deal passes doesn't mean that you know it's all signed sealed and delivered in UK legislation and, and the deal is going ahead there will be a number of, of, of opportunities where for it all to fall apart so I think that's important to remember in terms of public opinion changing I mean there is there is some evidence that there is a slight shift towards Remain and actually this morning we've got some new analysis of the British Social Attitudes uh, survey out which suggests that actually if the referendum was held today there would be a narrow majority in favour of Remain so 55% of the population would vote Remain but we're not talking huge shifts here I think that shift in public opinion is too marginal to make much difference to May politically, she sees very much herself as being the Prime Minister who stepped up to deliver Brexit. She's made a pig's ear of so much other stuff, including 
Brexit as well, you could argue. Um, But, you know, really, I think the legacy that she is looking to secure is delivering Brexit. And that's, you know, very, very clear in everything she says. So I I don't, yeah, I don't, it's what she's going to try and do. We'll see if she gets there. But I don't think, you know, a a marginal shift in public opinion is really going to uh, shift her. Okay, Um, Jennifer, I mean, is there any confidence at all in Brussels that the withdrawal agreement that everybody, of course, spent two years negotiating might finally make it over the line. I mean, Emmanuel Macron said, I think, didn't he? He put he put May's chances of getting it passed at about five percent. Uh, I mean, she does seem to have lost quite a lot of respect among her fellow European leaders. If it does go to a, a long delay, I mean, is it fair to say that they would probably prefer to see somebody else coming back to Brussels to see them? Well, difficult, difficult question. You mentioned Macron and his uh, estimate of 5%. And he, in fact, had revised that down after hearing Theresa May speak and give her presentation at that summit last week. So he went into the room thinking maybe there was a 10% chance that the deal would pass. And I think he's, he's probably on the pessimistic side, although although generally people are pretty pessimistic about whether this deal will pass. And, and Theresa May's stock has been on a downward trajectory for a long time, at least since the Salzburg summit last autumn, where she uh, sort of died a death in the summit room by uh, simply reading out an op-ed that had been published in that morning's newspapers to EU leaders. So, so steadily over the weeks, her 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 interactions with her fellow leaders and her performances at these summits have really not impressed people. And I think she's that's because she's really broken a sort of unspoken code of the European Council that you're meant to be honest and open with your fellow leaders. That everyone has problems. Everyone can understand the political pressures, the challenges of having an opposition, and and people appreciate, of course, the the, the very special and, and unprecedented uh, problem of Brexit. But but she, um, in in their eyes, simply uh, hedges and and dodges the question, and, and for that reason, she's really um, lost a lot of credibility. Mm. But that mm. said, that doesn't necessarily mean that they think another British prime minister would would make it any easier, because I think that the the view here is really that the problem is not the prime minister. The whole, the problem is the entire British political system that just refuses Absolutely. to make a choice well, about Brexit. And uh, and you even hear what one one EU leader in the summit room last week said, well, the UK is like a patient, you know, we need to take care of it. So you see others who take a harsher line would say, well, you know, the UK is now beholden to populists. So they, they really don't see who is going to be the person who's going to command a majority that will finally get the UK towards some kind of consensus on Brexit. So the problem really goes far beyond Theresa May. That's a perfect segue into my final question to Anand, actually. Um, just sort of wrapping up now, we're starting to run out of time. But so, Anand, could you just touch briefly on what, you know, what Labour's role might be in what happens next? But but also look a little bit more broadly on, on precisely that point that Jennifer just made, really, that, that which is that it does seem to be that this whole Brexit process up to now has, you know, has really laid bare what seems like a complete incapacity in the UK's sort of adversarial political system to actually arrive at a consensus or, or compromise. You know, it's all just turned into a, a, a Tory Labour power struggle with the fate of the country coming a poor second. 
Well, on Labour first, let me say firstly that I think Labour are about to have their own initiation into the problems of dealing with the parliamentary party over Brexit because their whipping arrangements over the indicative votes will be fascinating to watch and will cause all sorts of internal problems, I think. Do they whip for a customs union? Do they whip if there's a vote on a referendum? Corbyn and Co have got some very, very difficult decisions to make, I think, and I think we'll find that it's not just the Conservative Party that is willing to rebel against the whip when it comes to Brexit votes. But two other quick things about Labour. One is, and, and I think Jennifer was pointing about to this earlier, one of the dangers with indic- indicative votes is that MPs are asked to vote for unicorns. You know, if the Labour customs union with a say plan comes up, what's the point of that? Because actually we know that the European Union aren't going to give it. So Labour might find themselves having to specify what they mean a bit more clearly than they've wanted to today. And the final thing I'd say about Labour is for many Labour MPs, the problem isn't the withdrawal agreement. It's what comes afterwards, uh, which confuses this debate. I, Yeah, the withdrawal agreement, we pretty much accept it's the only deal we would ever have got. But why should we give carte blanche to a Conservative government to go and negotiate our rights away in the future? So keep your eye open for the Lisa Nandy amendment when the uh, meaningful vote comes back, because that gives Parliament some sort of say over that process. As for your wider question, I'm not sure this is a question of adversarial politics. I think it's, you know, let me try and be sort of paradoxical here. This is down to the fact that the British Parliament is perfectly representing the British people at the moment. There is no majority that is obvious for anything at the moment in the way of Brexit. It is very hard. This is deeply divisive. And it is. And the, the, perhaps the defining feature about Brexit is that just because your first preference is A doesn't mean your second preference is B. So you can be a Remainer who thinks that the next best to remaining is Norway. You can be a Remainer who thinks that actually Norway is the worst of all possible outcomes. Similarly, you can be a Lever who thinks that actually Norway is the best way of leaving. Or you could be a Lever who thinks that actually Norway isn't leaving at all. And because these preferences aren't logically ordered... It means it's very, very hard for people to come back on second preferences. And that, that is, I mean, that, I'm sure that's uh, that. Of course, that's true. But I guess my question was a little bit more. You know, if you look at countries, um, I, I don't know, like the Netherlands, like Denmark, uh, you know, where uh, coalition building and consensus politics is really at the root of their system, isn't it quite hard to imagine that that in in you know in that kind of regime a, a path would have been found? through something even, as you say, as kind of chaotic and unclear and divisive as as Brexit? I think there is a question here around... So in the UK, we've got a very majoritarian democratic system. So, you know, the idea is we have first past the post, we have a two-party system. And actually, those systems work pretty well, actually. Um, They deliver, you know, tend to deliver strong executives, um, alternating governments, there's accountability there. When you've got an electorate that's basically arranged around one spectrum, a left-right spectrum. Now, when you start to introduce another spectrum into politics, and a lot of people would argue that actually, um, you know, the the, the leave-remain divide doesn't map perfectly onto the left-right spectrum, it's another spectrum, then actually first-past-the-post majoritarian systems do pretty terribly. And I think this is what you've got, what you're seeing. You're seeing, um, you know, the two main parties are themselves split 
down the middle on these issues, which is the thing that means that there is a lack of leadership and there isn't consensus building. So I think, I mean, no one's talking about this now. You wouldn't expect anyone to when we're sort of in the, the immediate throes of crisis. But there probably is a bit of taking a step back to do at some point and saying, actually, majoritarian democracy has, you know, served the UK pretty well while the electorate has been, you know, there's a lot of identification with the two main parties. We do tend to be split along the left right um, spectrum. Is it sort of nearing the end of its days? Um, who knows? But I, I do think that that contributes to the lack of leadership that we're seeing at the moment. And can I just add, well, very, very quickly, the big question for British politics, I think, is does the Brexit divide persist in our politics yes. once Brexit is done? That's the question really we don't know the question. answer to, because yeah. we might reass- you know, the left-right division might reassert, might reassert itself. itself. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a really good point. Okay, excellent. Well, I think we better call it a day, except, of course, now for my very quick customary um, sort of round table. Not predictions. Um, we're, 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 we're back. The next Brexit Means podcast is going to be on April the 9th. Uh, that will be three days before the no deal or a new approach, please, deadline that the EU has set. Where do you think we're going to be by then? Sonia? Oh, it is predictions. Goodness. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I think... It was very hard to say. I think there is a chance still she'll get her deal through. I think there's a chance that Parliament won't come up with anything and that will help her get the deal over the line. But I think the most likely outcome now is actually we're in the territory of having asked for a long extension, preparing to take part in European elections. But that does really depend on whether Parliament is prepared to get behind something. And I think actually that will depend on the mechanisms and the procedures that they they use to vote on this. A lot of this stuff comes down to not just people's preferences, but how you aggregate those preferences. Process. That was, anyway, a very that was a very in- long answer. That was a very no, indicative yeah. prediction, wasn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> also known as uh, not making a prediction. <laughs> <laughs> Gen- Jennifer, where do you think we're going to be in a fortnight's time? Well, I think I'm on a similar page to Sonia, and I, I, I think it's very hard to see where the majority <laughs> comes from uh, comes for this deal. So in that case, I think on April the 9th, we could be sitting here and preparing for yet another EU summit where the UK is on its way to ask for another Brexit extension, potentially a, a, a very long extension that will will mean European elections and who knows, maybe a general election thrown in as well. OK, and and. Oh, well, just to be different, I think we'll have signed a deal in Parliament. It'll be approved. It might involve a tweaking of the political declaration, but I suspect Parliament will summon up a majority for something by April the 9th. Okay, well, we shall see who is right in a fortnight's time. Uh, That really is it then for this time. Thank you very much indeed Uh, to Sonia Soda, Jennifer Rankin and Anand Menon. We'll be back with a fresh dose of Brexit horrors in a little over a fortnight's time then. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. And if you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then. I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.